Today's episode is sponsored by the American Chemistry Council. Chemistry creates, America competes. Picture this. It's spring 2001, and a young state senator is walking into a pretty unremarkable government building in Springfield, Illinois. He's going into what the local Democrats call the inner sanctum, a fingerprint and code-protected room with a big printer and a bunch of computers with double monitors, and on them are detailed maps of the city of Chicago. The state senator had lost a race for Congress the year before, and he was about to make a political decision that changed history. The voters on the south side of Chicago had rejected him in that congressional race. But what if for his next race, he could choose his own voters? What if he could make his constituents wealthier, more educated, more diverse, by adding a different chunk of the city? That just might help him become the kind of politician for whom the possibilities were limitless. So with the help of some consultants and his state's redistricting process, he set out to do exactly that. Inside the inner sanctum, Illinois Democrats are drawing the state's new districts. The young legislator sits down in front of a terminal with a local Democrat named John Corrigan to draw Barack Obama a new district. Corrigan, who told me this story many years later in 2008 when I was covering the Obama campaign, was in charge of drawing all of Chicago's districts. And he also happened to have volunteered for Obama in his recent losing campaign. Obama's new gerrymandered state Senate district gave him access to some of the most important people in Chicago. David Axelrod became one of his constituents. It gave him a new fundraising base. It helped set him on the course to become a successful Senate candidate. And of course, that set him on the course to becoming president. Fast forward to now, 2021. It's the year after the census, and there are many people sitting at much more technologically sophisticated computers drawing new legislative district maps. I'm Ryan Lizza. This is Playbook Deep Dive. Gerrymandering. Everyone does it. Everyone has done it. And only relatively recently, some people are trying to get the drawing to stop. So today... One of the guys in the office on the first day I was there was sitting at his desk with magic markers. The next thing I knew, I was had a, my own magic markers and paper maps and was drawing districts on, on pieces of paper. And the guy who spent decades helping Republicans rig the maps in Michigan. We have the votes. We have the power. Let's use it to our advantage. That's how the game is played. Let's play the game to its fullest extent. Who now has come to sort of regret it. When there is no fear of appealing to a majority of voters in a general election, you don't have to take consensus positions on anything. And get this, in North Carolina, many say ongoing redistricting efforts are resulting in some of the most gerrymandered maps ever. But first, let's go back to Michigan. We had begun the process even before the official release of the census data, which occurred right at the end of March in 2011. Jeff Timmer is a senior consultant for the Never Trump Republican group, the Lincoln Project. But way before this, he spent his career consulting for Republicans in Michigan, 
on how to draw favorable congressional maps. The 2011 cycle was my third cycle at that point uh, of redistricting. Uh, we had been using estimated populations across uh, jurisdictions across Michigan to do preliminary maps and get frameworks in place and kind of anticipate what the census was going to show us. That day at the end of March when the, when the numbers were released and we were able to plug them into the software, the official numbers, and get going, we kind of had a, a running head start and it didn't change much of the framework we had been looking at. And so uh, we had toyed around. Michigan was losing a seat that decade as it had the decade before, and it did again in after the 2020 census. Um, and we had decided uh, that we were going to take that seat. To, you know, when the music stopped playing, it was going to be a Democrat that was left without a seat to sit in. How did you get into the side of politics that works on this very esoteric but incredibly important issue? Back in 1991, um, I had just started working for the uh, Republicans in the Michigan House of Representatives. They were in the minority at the time. Um, this is back, we didn't even have our own personal computers in our offices at this point. One of the guys in the office on the first day I was there was sitting at his desk with magic markers and a county map of Michigan and drawing. I said, what are you doing? He said, I'm working on you know, some redistricting scenarios. The next thing I knew, I was had a uh, my own magic markers and paper maps and was drawing, you know, these pieces of, you know, with a calculator, adding up county populations and drawing districts on, on pieces of paper. And uh, I've been doing it for now over 30 years. All right. So we fast forward to 2011 and you're working on Michigan. When you get this job, when you're sitting down to work on these maps, what are the goals going in? Well, Republicans had just in, in 2010 uh, retaken the state house uh, from Democratic control, and um, a Republican governor had been elected um, after a term-limited outgoing Democratic governor. So the Republicans are going to decide where the where the maps go. And so looked at where can we best put our thumb on the scale within the allowable confines of the law um, and tilt these districts to our advantage in a way that will be more durable than it was 10 years ago. Because in 2001, we had thought we had done just that, had our thumb on the scale and created durable majorities for Republicans at the congressional and legislative levels. But those majorities had quickly evaporated by 2006 with a, the very um, poor Republican year in George W. Bush's second midterm election. There was a whole lot going on then. Um, and then with Obama's election in 2008, those those majorities had largely vanished. And so we were um, hell-bent on doing better the next 10 years than we had done the, the last 10. And so the, the decision was made early on among Republicans who were controlling the process that the, the member of Congress left without a seat uh, at the when the music stopped playing in, in the game of um, redistricting musical chairs was going to likely be uh, then-freshman Congressman Gary Peters. Gary Peters pulled a fast one and moved into a neighboring congressional district that was represented by a freshman Democrat from Detroit. And Gary won that election. He's now gone on to win two terms in the U.S. Senate after serving a couple terms in Congress. So uh, our plan to take out Gary Peters turned out pretty damn good for him. <laughs> so sometimes, right, it's unexpected consequences here. Did you ever look at a map and think that's really bad for voters? 
but really, really smart from a purely partisan perspective? I've talked and written a little bit about this over the last few years. At the time, no, not in the sense of, boy, this is bad for voters, bad for democracy, could lead to rise in extremism, where it was more about um, we have the votes, we have the power, let's use it to our advantage. That's how the game is played. Let's play the game to its fullest extent. And it's it's amazing to me how over 10 years, how drastically the landscape has shifted from what I think on either side of the political aisle, what was considered extreme in 2010 or 2011 versus what's considered extreme or mainstream today. Uh, it has changed so rapidly uh, where now we have, you know, political extremism, political radicalism and violence becoming commonplace or threats of violence uh, that would have just been unheard of. 10 years ago when we were doing this process. We never envisioned the damage it was going to lead to. Partially to play devil's advocate, gerrymandering gets blamed for everything in politics these days. And sometimes I think it can be overstated, you know, how every problem someone sees in politics, they, they trace back to gerrymandering. Um, but you did conclude that the severely partisan map-making process was um, having some very, very bad uh, effects. And just take us through um, some of those regrets you've had or what you think the the, the real, um, you know, the biggest problems with, with gerrymandering are. And what was the turning point for you where you realized some of your own work might be contributing to worrisome trends in American politics? Well, I think you hit the nail on the head when you said, you know, gerrymandering is often blamed as the root of a lot of problems in politics. And it is a problem. It is not the problem. When you have members of Congress, of state legislatures who are subject only to winning or losing primary elections, uh, lower turnout elections uh, of party members, especially in states uh, where you don't have a runoff election, where you're not where you're not required to get a fifty percent majority, even among members of your own party. And so you end up with members who become uh, entrenched in safe districts by virtue of you know getting. 12,000 votes in a congressional primary <laughs> in, two, in 2004, something like that. And, it, and they become the Jim Jordans and Mark Meadows and Matt Gates's and Marjorie Taylor Greens uh, of their time. And that's how we end up with people like that. And when there is no fear of appealing to a majority of voters in a general election, you don't have to take consensus positions on anything. Obviously, maps get challenged in courts all the time. What were the legal guardrails that you operated under um, when you were uh, when you're drawing a map, and how much leeway did you feel um, you could sort of not be bound by the, those guardrails? I'll get way into the weeds. Back in the 1980s, uh, with with the 1980s redistricting, um, the Michigan Supreme Court ended up the, the, a divided legislature could not produce a map in 1981. The Supreme, the state Supreme Court got involved and they issued, they appointed a special master to draw plans and they issued him very detailed hierarchical guidelines. You shall preserve county boundaries wherever possible. You shall preserve city and township boundaries. And if you need to break them for any reason, this is the procedure you must follow. Well, Republicans realized 
that that benefited them. Preservation of geography, because of the way Republicans were diffused throughout the state and Democrats were packed together uh, through their own self-segregation, that benefited us. And so in the 1990s, when Republicans gained control, we had John Engler as governor, Republican-controlled legislature. One of the first things we did was codify, put in statute those special master criteria. That process was used in 2001, again in 2011, that law stayed in effect. But then once people became aware of, hey, the Republicans seem to be really good at this and that law seems to really benefit them, then in 2018 in Michigan, they passed a constitutional amendment that was voted on in a statewide vote to change, to take the redistricting power away from the legislature and give it to uh, an independent citizens commission as a result of that. Let's talk about that. This is the big um, innovation for reformers, and most reformers, correct me if I'm wrong, want states to use independent, nonpartisan commissions. So what's that going to look like? Is it is it working the way that reformers want, or are were reformers being too optimistic about how a commission can fix this process? I think the answer is yes to all of the above. It's working differently than in the past, that's for sure. The intent to take politics out of politics never seems to work. Because of the way the the Constitution was changed, there's four self-identified Republicans, four self-identified Democrats, and five uh, self-identified independents. So the majority of commissioners are partisans, being either Republican or Democrat, but the independents have the largest number on. What you end up with, (laughs) the biggest guiding factor is, not any of the legal requirements, but does it look good to my eye? Even if at the end they apply these measures of partisan fairness to the plans and they're still out of balance in favor of Republicans. And that's what's happened in a state like Michigan that, that has voted now Democratic. What we still have maps that are under consideration now uh, for the for Congress, for the state Senate and state House that have inherent advantages to Republicans, just not as big as they were 10 years ago. They're only half as big. <laughs> Let me just a bit, just to sort of uh, pull out a little bit. What do you think is the the biggest thing that people misunderstand about the redistricting process? Probably, and I've never been asked that before. I would I would think one of the most common misconceptions is how few number of people are actually involved in it. Um, what has always uh, struck me from having a seat on the inside of it for three different decades inside the Republican mechanism uh, in, in decision-making structure uh, is the, the, the way that, at least on the Republican side, they were able to have a very hierarchical process that really locked out a large number, nearly all of the legislators, for instance, and only a handful of those ever got to see maps before they voted on them, before they were ready to vote. As I learned talking to Jeff, redistricting is its own little world. There are lawyers that just focus on redistricting, political consultants who specialize in the art of drawing maps, and there are journalists who cover redistricting obsessively, like Politico's Ali Mutnick. I'm Ali Mutnick, a campaign reporter for Politico. All right, Ali. It's got a lot of lingo, and I want you to sort of help us understand the jargon that you redistricting experts use. Let's start with one of my favorite words that I just learned five minutes ago, and that is the dummy mander. What is the dummy mander? Great question. It's a great term. (laughs) You told me to ask that, so. Yeah, exactly. I'm just complimenting myself. 
<laughs> so a dummy mander is a district that is drawn by one party to perform a certain way for them. So drawn by Democrats to elect Democrats, drawn by Republicans to elect Republicans. And um, by the end of the decade, it ends up doing the opposite. So if Republicans drew a district to elect a Republican candidate for 10 years, if by the end of the decade it's electing a Democrat, that is the rough definition of a dummy mander. So what are some good examples of uh, dummy manders in, in recent history? Okay, so... Georgia's sixth congressional district. If you can remember all the way back to 2017, this was the most expensive congressional election of all time. Tom Price was nominated to be Donald Trump's health and human service secretary. He held a seat that was held by Newt Gingrich, Johnny Isaacson. It was the northern Atlanta suburbs. It had Roswell, Marietta, really deep Republican territory. And that was drawn to be a safe Republican seat. It gave Mitt Romney a 20-point victory in 2012, and then Donald Trump only won it by one point in 2016. And so it was the site of this massive special election between now Senator John Ossoff, then congressional candidate, and Karen Handel. Um, and by the end of 2018, Lucy McBath had beat Karen Handel after she won it in the special. And by 2020, she won by double digits. So that was a seat drawn to be a safe Republican seat that ended up in Democratic hands by the end of the decade because of political realignment, population growth. It's a dummy mander. So two other terms that you introduced me to are cracking and packing. Let's start with cracking. What is cracking? So cracking usually refers to cities. Um, and if you've got a major city and let's say that's filled with Democratic-leaning voters, we'll take Utah as a good example. If you crack Salt Lake City into four pieces where it's like a pinwheel, they all start in Salt Lake City, they take a little bit of the city and then they go out, stretch out towards the rest of the state, then you could have four districts that will vote reliably Republican because you've taken that Democratic power center in Salt Lake City and you've spread those Democratic voters across four districts so they can't elect their candidate of choice. And we see that all across the country. Um, you know, Both parties use that to their advantage. If it's a big city, it has to be cracked. The average size of a congressional district is 750,000 people. So, you know, if Chicago can't be one congressional district, it has to be a bunch. But if it's a smaller city and you're cracking it, then that may be a more aggressive form of partisan gerrymandering. All right. Tell us about packing. Okay, packing. So if you are a Republican and you're trying to maximize your advantage in a red or a purple state, you're going to want to pack as many Democrats as you can into one district. Because if you spread them out throughout the decade, those you know Democratic-leaning voters could grow and overwhelm the Republican-leaning voters in a bunch of districts. But if you pack them into one district, you're um, you know essentially containing that growth and allowing all of the other surrounding districts to stay pretty red. And, I mean, packing... Both parties do it, but Republicans have used it really well in a few places like Texas um, and Georgia. And you know we've seen them creating these new deep blue seats, essentially handing Democrats a new seat in exchange for keeping all of the surrounding ones relatively red. And I think I would argue that's become maybe more 
more a more important tool in the Trump era, as we've seen the suburbs become this really swingy territory, is to you know shove all of these suburban voters who are maybe you know now more democratic than they used to be into one district. The packing and cracking is really apparent in North Carolina because. Deborah Ross is the new member from the Raleigh area, and Kathy Manning is the new member from the Greensboro area. Like, uncracking both of those cities brought them into Congress. And they did leave Deborah Ross's seat someone intact, so she's going to remain. But they basically just recracked Greenboro and sent Kathy Manning packing and probably will push Mark Walker back into Congress. So it's a really frustrating example for Democrats because it just undid the gains that they made because they came so late in the decade. So I do feel like it hits that theme of lawsuits and timing and moving backwards. North Carolina, which, as Ali said, is home to a lot of packing and cracking, is the domain of Bob Phillips. The fight for fair maps has become maybe one of our top priorities. I wanted to talk to Bob because he's the executive director of Common Cause North Carolina. 20-some years I have been in this job and have been pushing again, for a better redistricting process for uh, the state of North Carolina. Which means Bob is right in the middle of the action. Basically, he's been suing for the past 20 years, and it's getting to him. If we have to go another decade with maps that are ultimately found to be unconstitutional two or three cycles later, it's dreadful. I mean, it just kind of completely sinks a lot of us who were doing the works you know, morale and and sort of hopefulness. And I think increasingly in North Carolina, because we are the most litigated state in the country, I believe, over gerrymandered maps. And a lot of the big U.S. Supreme Court cases have come out of North Carolina over the years. And sure, there are a lot of people here who don't know anything about what we are talking about, or they may have a vague (laughs) understanding about it. I wish more did. That's my job, I guess, to help educate folks. But um, I think a lot of people, it contributes to this feeling of this, you know, stinks and democracy doesn't work. And, uh, you know, what we saw last decade in North Carolina, I don't know if we're the only state in America that can say this, and I don't say it with pride, but every single legislative and congressional election uh, in the aughts was ultimately run under districts and maps that were found to be unconstitutional. Every single one of them. Wow. From 2012 to 2020. That's amazing. And, and you know, you just can't sustain that. That is terrible for democracy. Whether Republicans are in charge or, as we had seen historically, whether Democrats are in charge. To be fair, in North Carolina, Democrats had their opportunity and they never did anything. Let's go back to 2010 and describe for us the congressional maps that were drawn in North Carolina in 2010. What was the problem with them? Well, it was the first time that the Republican Party had taken control of the legislature, both chambers, in the 20th century, it had never happened. And of course, I guess we were in the 21st century, but it had been more than 100 years. And, you know, they again had a very, very talented, I guess some people have called him the Michelangelo of gerrymandering, a guy named Thomas Hoffler, this guru of gerrymandering who worked nationally for the Republicans, but was based in North Carolina. I hate to use the word the perfect storm, but there were a lot of alignment of these factors that came to kind of came to fruition. And um, I think what we saw initially when they did draw the maps was uh, we had 13 congressional districts and it was a 7-6 that went maybe 9-4. Uh, it was a pretty dramatic uh, shift. And uh, eventually they had the map, um, I think in the second round when they drew it, that 
became a 10-3 map, and it belied what we are in North Carolina, which is pretty much a 50-50 state in terms of statewide races. Not to say the Democrats weren't guilty of gerrymandering. They were. But, um, you know, as I guess the cliche is, the Republicans took it to another level. So Hoffler, the, the Mike, you call him the Michelangelo of redistricting. And I'm guessing that North Carolina was his Sistine Chapel. <laughs> I like that. Yes, that's great. <laughs> what did it look like? Well, initially, we've had some crazy districts uh, that were actually crafted when the Democrats were in control. One was the so-called snake district that stretched from Charlotte to the triad. And uh, then the other one was the old first congressional which I think they said linear-wise, you could go from North Carolina to Austin, Texas. It takes like a quarter of the counties in North Carolina. Um, he kept those, but his signature was to sort of understand that he could push down the Republican numbers in districts to, say, 53 52%, and really pack Black voters, pack Democratic voters, in fewer districts. And it's kind of the lose big, win small strategy. And uh, he was the master at it. And we saw that in North Carolina, where uh, some of the areas of our state that had been either competitive or had even been, you know, Democratic districts were flipped. And we wound up again with, you know, for a while, there were those two traditional voting rights, you know, districts, one that was sort of based in where I am, the Triangle, Chapel Hill, Durham, Raleigh, and that is a progressive area. And that was it. Democratic voters, black voters, you know, packed where the Democrats were winning by 50 points or more, and the Republicans were winning by five, seven, eight, ten points in the eight, nine, ten districts that they were, you know, winning. So, Allie, what does this next cycle spell for North Carolina? Under the new map, the you know, Republican majority essentially recracked Greensboro, then added a new seat because North Carolina gained a seat in redistricting. So Republicans will come out of North Carolina uh, with two new, relatively red seats, um, and Democrats have kind of went backwards. And I think that was frustrating for them because they got a court decision. It came so late into the decade, um, as it sounds like you were talking about in your interview. And now, you know, there's basically just a reset because it's time to draw the lines again and they have to start and sue all over. The legal process is incredibly slow. Democrats are much more well-funded when it comes to pressing legal battles and challenging maps in the courts. Has that affected anything in North Carolina? And do you think that the sort of this new, you know, legal infrastructure that the Democrats have developed in the last five years, will that play a big role in, you know, preventing some of the hyper uh, partisan maps that we're starting to see in North Carolina and elsewhere that are advantaging Republicans over Democrats? Yeah, definitely. So, um, President Obama's big, you know, post-presidency project was to combat redistricting. He has lent his name and his star power to this cause, for sure. And he asked and recruited his former Attorney General Eric Holder to make this, you know, a, a priority of his in the 2020s and to come. And they founded together a group called the National Democratic Redistricting Committee. 
And it's a collection of lawyers and strategists whose sole purpose is twofold, to raise money so that they can fund legal challenges to maps that they think are unfairly drawn, but then also to change the public's awareness and understanding of gerrymandering. Like They are really pushing for this culture shift of if you're an average citizen, do you understand what gerrymandering is, how it affects you, how it affects your say in your local government, um, what you can do to influence the map making process. And they're basically trying to drag it out into the open and out of these back rooms. They're advocating for commissions, more public input in the process, more competitive districts. Um, but then as a backstop, they're also suing. Um, the big solution for Democrats who want to reform partisan redistricting um, is commissions, nonpartisan uh, commissions. Um where are they working if they are working and where are they dysfunctional? Um, what's the, it, it, it seems like this is a, you know, like a lot of political reformers ideas. Um, sometimes there are unintended consequences and if they're not done right, it could be just as bad as the system it replaces. I think commissions this cycle have been incredibly frustrating to both parties, but especially to Democrats, because they've been plagued with so much partisan gridlock and a lot of incompetence and bickering. Maybe the most stark example was Virginia, where Virginia had a commission for the first time. It was something that Democrats ran on when they won the state Senate and the state assembly, and they enacted it into office. Um, they enacted it as law. And this commission was just set up to fail. It was an even split of Democrats and Republicans. They were chosen by the leadership of each party. And they couldn't even agree on a starting point for the maps. And these meetings were like, kind of like watching a little mini soap opera. Three Democrats stormed out of the room to deny quorum. One of the, you know, kind of essential parliamentarian figures for the commission was reduced to tears People were yelling and bickering and accusing each other of submitting, you know, nakedly partisan maps. And it just ended up in the state Supreme Court. And the Virginia State Supreme Court now gets to choose what the map looks like. And so I think there are a lot of people who look at that and say, well, that's not really good governance. How is this any different from just, you know, Democrats or Republicans drawing their own maps? Okay, Ali. So what is the state of redistricting right now nationally? Give us the big picture. So we've got, by my count, I think 14 states that have completed redistricting and another six that have one at-large district. So chugging along, it got started pretty late this year. The census data that normally comes out in April uh, wasn't available until August for states to actually start diving in and drawing it. So we're in this really, really compressed time frame for legislatures and commissions to take this data, pass new maps. Um, and then get candidates filed and running. So it's really a sprint instead of a marathon this time around. Republicans will draw more seats than Democrats, but they won't draw as many seats as they were able to in 2011. Democrats have gotten a foot in the door in a lot of places, whether it's you know winning back a governorship or getting a commission in place. There are more commissions now than there were in 2011. And so, you know, we tend to think that that means more competitive seats because commissions often aren't drawing, uh, hopefully aren't drawing for partisan gain. That's almost certainly not their mandate. Yeah. And 
I think one thing that's made redistricting so much more complicated in 2021 is that we've got incredibly divergent data sets for lots of parts of the country. So if you are a Democrat or Republican, you're really looking at all of the election data for a certain region and then trying to figure out how that's going to behave Republican for the rest of the decade. How can I draw a seat that's going to behave Democratic? But Trump comes in and causes, you know, these longtime Democrats to all of a sudden be these Trump Republicans. And these, you know, especially in suburban, affluent, well-educated areas, these are like longtime Republican Party stalwarts to vote for Democrats. And when we have a realignment that's so quick and uh, this wholesale change, it makes it really hard for each party to predict, okay, well, Trump's out of office and are the suburbs still Democratic? Is this area still going to vote Republican even if Trump's gone? And it's going to create a lot more uncertainty and I think gives everybody a little bit more pause. We don't know as much as we thought we did <laughs> about how voters are going to behave. So Donald Trump created a lot of dummy manders. He did. He created a lot of dummy manders. An unheralded legacy. What have you learned since, you know, getting deep into the weeds on this issue and, and covering it for as long as you have now? that people don't really understand? Like, what are, the, what are the big misconceptions about redistricting and gerrymandering? I think that there's a theme or a common assumption that Republicans are, you know, the only perpetrators of gerrymandering because they did it so well in 2011 in a lot of states. Hmm. Allie, Thank you so much for sharing your insights and reporting. Really appreciate it. Of course, anytime. And that's our show. Our producers are Annie Reese and Carlos Bredo. Our senior producer is Jenny Ament. And our executive producer is Irene Nogucci. Mike Zappler is Playbook's daily newsletter editor. And Zach Stanton is deputy newsletter editor. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. If you like what you hear, subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you listen. And for a live look at how the many redistricting fights are playing out throughout the country and what the final maps will look like, pull up your terminal and go to politico.com slash redistricting or find a link on our show notes. I'm Ryan Lizza. Thanks for listening.